This audio is from South Fellowship Church. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit southfellowship.org. Let's pray. King Jesus, we do. We, we come before you. We bow, immortal, invisible, only wise, victorious, accessible, glorious one. And we come under this beautiful weight of knowing all that about you and yet wrestling with this mystery that you care about people like us. Uh, may we see a piece of your heart for us today. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but that was fun for me, so I don't really care. Um, I absolutely loved it, and I'm glad I wore boots or else I would have jumped out of my shoes. So, um, hey, let's welcome our third service. We're glad you're with us. Solid grounds tonight. As I was preparing for this, our last message in our series that we're calling Empty is the New Full, where we've been exploring these paradoxes of the Christian faith, things like surrender is the new freedom, generosity is the new blessing, um, the, it's uh, the first or last is the new first. As I was studying for this last message in this series, I was reminded of um, an incident that I had in our first home in Aurora a number of years ago. Um, like some of you, I'm not the, exactly Mr. Fix-It around the house. Any shout-outs? My idea of being Mr. Fix-It is to find somebody on Craigslist who can fix it. Okay, so, hi, Mr. Fix-It, come on over. That's my idea of um, home ownership and taking care of a house. So, um, when the electricity in our garage went out and I was unable to put our garage door up and down, I immediately looked around went to the backyard and I looked in our circuit box breaker, whatever thingamabobber you call that, told you, and none of them were tripped and that was the extent of my knowledge about electricity flowing through my house. So uh, I called an electrician, I said, hey, we've got a huge problem over here, I uh, can't get my garage door up, don't expect me to get out of my car, do you? Um, and actually put it up, can't be doing that, don't have that kind of time on my hands. So I had him come out and he took a look around and surveyed the scene and said, can I go up to your bathroom upstairs? And I said, well, sure. really would have rathered you did that business before you got to my house, but what's mine is yours. And so he walks upstairs, and, and, he, and I'm following him, of course, because I want to see how this is done, um, and not what he's going to do in the rest. Anyway, so, sorry. Electrician work. Um, so he walks into my bathroom, goes over to my um, outlet on the wall, and it ha it's one of those ones that has two buttons in it. One says test, the other says reset, right? You have these in your home, probably somewhere. He pushes reset, and with all of the confidence in the world, walks down into my garage, pushes the garage door opener, and said garage goes right up. And I'm like, let's build a monument of this fella. What? He's like, you just tripped the circuit. Like, all you had to do was push that one little easy reset button, and you could have done this yourself. That'll be $150. <laughs> and it was the right of shame as I signed over that money for a guy that came out and pushed a button for me. Have you ever been in a situation where um, you found out that the solution to a problem was far less complex than you thought it was? Well, I thought we're getting ready for a time in God's word together today. And if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll start in verse 18. But I was reminded of the fact 
That in many ways, Paul's going to present to the Corinthian church, this is a letter to that church, he's going to present to them this reality that as followers of Jesus, we have the beautiful opportunity to live under, that that the greatest problem we will ever face, and that's a problem of sin, a separation between us and God, has been fixed already. And you and I stepping into it is sort of like hitting the easy button. It's just the the beautiful invitation from the heart of God to walk into it. It was true for this electricity problem in my home, and it's true for the problem of sin that confines and damages and kills the human soul. As we look at God's word together today, he's going to invite us to wrestle with this question. Can it really be that easy? Can can it really be that, um, to use his language, foolish? Can it be that mad? Can it be that insane? Can it be that easy? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 17, I'm going to give a little bit of context for our discussion. But here's what the Apostle Paul writes to this church that he deeply and dearly loves, the church at Corinth. He says this, For Christ did not send me to baptize. That, was, that wasn't his purpose, but it was to preach the gospel, he says. And not with words of eloquent wisdom lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So interesting, note what he's saying. He's saying, I didn't come to you as the smartest. I didn't come to you as the brightest. I didn't have the best sermons in the world, the clearest outlines, the best fill in the blanks. In fact, for the Apostle Paul, you probably could have filled in all the blanks before he even started preaching, which some of you I know do already. So I'm with him, okay? So he says, I didn't come to you with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross, he goes, if I did, the cross would have been emptied of its power. So Paul is a communicator. Paul is a preacher. Paul is an apostle, is a disciple, as one who wanted to communicate the gospel to other people. He goes, I wanted to make it as simple as I could. As simple as I could. And here's his simple message. For the word of the cross is folly. Literally, it's foolishness. You could write in your Bible, madness or insanity. In the Greek, it sort of has this idea of a guy with just crazy hair and lit up eyes talking about it. That's the content that's being presented. It's insane. The word of the cross is insanity. It's madness. It's folly, foolishness to those who are perishing. But he says, but to us, but to us who follow the way of Jesus, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of of God. He goes on to quote from the book of Isaiah, and he says, listen, this was always God's plan. This was always God's method. He was going to confound the wisdom of the world by doing something insane, something foolish, something mad. He says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I'm going to, I'm going to bring the wise to their knees. And the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. I am going to throw a wrench in the cogs of everything humanity thinks as reasonable and logical. And I am going to redeem and I am going to save, not by reason, not by logic, but by the way of the cross. Oh man, it's craziness. It's madness. It's insanity. See, see for the Apostle Paul, he stands up in the city of Corinth this city that was prominent for not only um, its development of culture, but, but for the way that it, it was intellectual, and, and it was right around Athens and the, and the, and the philosophers, and, and the way that, that thinking developed and prominent wisdom took root here. 
And Paul's message in the middle of this city is that a homeless Jewish rabbi who died on the other side of the empire holds the key to a powerful life, to an eternal destiny with this God who designed us, loved us, paid for us, purchased for us, and invites us home. And the only way to access that is by the way of the cross. I love the way that the great New Testament scholar N.T. Wright puts it when he says this. He said, it wouldn't have been thought of as a new philosophy. It would have been madness. It wasn't an appeal to high culture. It was news of an executed criminal from a despised race. See, so for 2,000 years, we hear the message of the cross. There's history now around the cross. But, but for the Corinthian follower of Jesus, you have to step back into their shoes. They, they probably knew people who'd been crucified. This was an execution chamber of the Roman Empire. It wasn't pretty. It was gruesome. It was gritty. It was nasty. It was bloody. For us, it's victory. For them, it's death. And this is the message that Paul says It's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God, period. As if to say that if we take this out of Christianity, we don't have Christianity anymore. It's the center point. Now, just a clarification. When he says it's madness, what what he is not saying is followers of Jesus should check their brains at the door. The followers of Jesus should seek to be ignorant and should, I mean, don't even, don't even read books, don't, don't listen to podcasts, don't get educated, don't be educated, okay? That's not what he's saying at all. That's not what he's saying at all. He's simply drawing a contrast to a wisdom that comes from the world, sort of bottom up, and a wisdom that comes from the divine, that comes from God, top down. And he says, this wisdom is completely different than anything else you will see or hear The cross is just foolishness, but it is, at its core, the power of God. So here's what I want to do. Really simple this morning. Here's what I want to do. I want to take our collective hearts and our collective minds, and I want to focus it back on the thing that Christianity is built on, and that is simply the cross. That 2,000 years ago, Jesus walked the hill of Calvary, died the death he should have died, lived the life we should have lived, rose from the grave, and offers us life abundant and full. Paul says, if our faith is in anything else, we are not followers of Jesus And we've lost touch with the power that is at hand because of the beautiful, victorious cross. So so here's the invitation today. Here's the invitation today. Simply embrace this absurdity. Embrace this madness. Embrace this insanity. Embrace the absurdity of the cross and step into the abundance of Jesus. He says there's power waiting for you if you'll step into that. If you'll check all of the other worldly ways of wisdom, if you'll, if you'll check all of your pursuits, if you'll check everything else at the door and step into this, Paul says, it's the power of God. You have to understand, though, that, that for ancients, that, that wisdom was not just sort of um, pithy quips. It was, they weren't sayings or quotes that they repeated. Uh, it was a way of living. It was a, lay, a way of being. The reason that the philosophers were so intent on gaining and gathering wisdom was because it created a pathway for them to walk. It created a way for them to live. And so for followers of Jesus, this way of wisdom, of walking and being in the world is centered and founded on and solely on the cross of Christ. That's what he says. There's no 
nothing else. Throughout the scriptures, you'll see this division between uh, the way the world thinks and the wisdom of the world and the way of God and the way that God invites us to live. Listen to the way that Paul says it to the church at Colossae. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. So he goes, hey, there's, there's a freedom found in understanding who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And there's a captivity for the human soul when we step outside of that. So he says, see to it that no one keeps you, takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. That's what's starting to happen in Corinth. They're starting to embrace the way of Corinth rather than the way of the cross. And I guess I'd ask the same thing of you. What's the way of wisdom, the way of life that you have embraced? Is it the way of Littleton? Is it the way of Denver? Is it the American dream? Or is it the way of the cross? Is it the way of the cross? He goes on to teach us how, teach the Corinthian church and us how to align our lives, our souls, our minds with the way of the cross, what we have to believe about the cross in order to fully step into it. And so I want to point out three things for you in this passage that shape our understanding of what Jesus has done and the way of wisdom, foolishness, that he invites us to step into because of his cross. Jump back with me to verse 18. And listen to what Paul writes to this church. He says, for the word of the cross is folly. It's madness. It's foolishness for those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the way of God. Here's his his invitation. Here's his claim is that in the end, human wisdom falters because it looks at humans. But godly wisdom succeeds because it looks at God. It creates a different pathway. He says, in a sense... In a sense, the philosophers, the the scribes, the smartest people in the world outsmarted themselves because God's way is just far more ridiculous than they could have ever imagined. Will you look up at me for a moment, friend? If we lose touch with the cross, if we lose sight of what Jesus has done, if we lose sight of his resurrection, his death, his atoning sacrifice for sin, if we lose sight of the cross, we lose touch with the power. That's what he says. Here's what we'll say about the cross. The, the, The supremacy of the cross is the first thing, and he says it's absolutely absurd. It's beautifully crazy. The fact that as a religion, as a way of living, what stands at the center point of it all is a cross on a hill 2,000 years ago that a homeless Jewish rabbi was pinned to by a powerful Roman empire. It's craziness. It's madness. It would be like today, people saying, you know what? I still believe that David Koresh guy had it going on. So back in uh, 1993, David Koresh had... um, a little cult down in Waco, Texas. You may have read about him, heard about him, seen the fire. 70 of his followers died. So, so 20 plus years ago, this happened. You and I don't talk much about it today. We don't revisit it a whole lot. The way of Jesus might have sounded a little bit like the way of David back in that day, in that time. It would have been that absurd, that crazy. 
that this homeless Jewish rabbi purchased redemption to open the floodgates of heaven, that he is making all things new from the perspective of humans. It looks absolutely insane from the perspective of God. It's him clothed in humanity, living the perfect life, dying the atoning death, and inviting us to walk into the abundance that he offers us. That's the foundation of Christianity. If you take that out, you have nothing left. You have nothing left. Listen to what Paul says to this Corinthian church as he goes on to write to them. He says, for I decided, as as if this was a conscious decision, I decided to know nothing among you except, say it with me, Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's it. And it wasn't that Paul didn't teach anything else. It wasn't that he didn't have any other content other than the cross. What it did mean is that other content was built on this foundation of the cross, of Jesus Christ crucified. Everything falls if that didn't happen in Paul's opinion. So listen to what he says. Listen to what he says. Verse 22. He says, for the Jews, they, so there's going to be other ways of looking at this way of Jesus even. And he's going to address the... Um, the misguided nature of two. He's going to say, for the Jews, they demand signs. They're looking for God to affirm his activity and his presence by the way of the miraculous. And and you really can't fault them, can you? I mean, this was the way that they grew to know God. This is their story. God leads them by way of a cloud by day and fire by night. He parts the Red Sea. He stops the Jordan River. Hey, with a marching band, ancient city walls fall down. So they're going, hey, we just need a little, we just need a little help here. Give us something. We want you to do the miraculous, God. And he says, listen, listen, I've already done the miraculous. Clothed myself in humanity and walked to Calvary. That's what I've done. So if you're, if you're looking for a sign, you're looking in the wrong place, look to the cross, he says. The second thing, look at with me, verse 22. The Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. He says there's, there's other folks, they, they, don't, they don't want the sign. They want the argument to make sense. They want the rhetoric to be perfect. They want the oratory to be flashy. That's what they want. They want their ears to be tickled. Paul goes, listen, Christianity doesn't play by those rules. God doesn't play your game I think the question we need to wrestle with, if we're going to follow the way of Jesus, is, is the cross enough for us? Are we willing to step into this in such a way where we say, God, I don't, I don't need anything else. I have everything I need. I've had the chance a few times in my life to travel to Seattle and, and lived in Portland for a, a while and I love the Pacific Northwest, and for like the three days of the year where it's uh, sunny there, if you go to Seattle, what you'll see is not Gordon Feet. What you'll see is Mount Rainier. And see, we have, we have 14,000-foot peaks here in Colorado, praise be to God, but we don't have 14,000-foot peaks that come straight out of the ocean. And if you go to Seattle on a clear day, and you get to a place where you can see it in the city. You can see Mount Rainier from the city. Everything else starts to look a little bit bleak and a little bit lower and a little bit like oh, less impressive compared to that. When Paul describes the cross, he describes it as supreme, as the defense 
defining event and action on God's behalf for us. That's what the crush looks like in the life of the believer. See, discipleship as a follower of Christ is simply learning to wrap our hearts and our minds around the action, activity, presence, goodness, blessing of God as given through Calvary. That's the Christian life. Christian thinking is not self-help. It's cross-redefines. That's what it is. I love the way that Preben Vang puts it. He says this. He says, seven habits of highly effective people doesn't become good Christian, a good Christian discipleship manual just because we add a scriptural proverb to each of the habits. Amen. Christian discipleship, Christian thinking is cruciform in its nature. It needs to be shaped and wrapped around the cross of Jesus. See, my, my problem with the foolishness of the supremacy of cross is that essentially God's saying all life comes through death, through my giving of myself for you. Self, are you willing to be that foolish? Are you willing to be that mad, that crazy, that insane? It's his invitation. Look at the way this continues. For consider your calling. He says this to the Corinthian church. <laughs> this is awesome. Because here's what he's going to go. Uh, he's going to say, I have one illustration. You all. That's his point. right? The cross is absolute absurdity. It's absolute madness. It's absolute foolishness. Case in point, South Fellowship Church. Brothers, not many of you, I love how he slips in, brothers, just so we don't think that we're at odds here, but I am calling you, well, foolish. He says, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you are powerful. Not many of you are of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing or uh, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Here's what he says. He took just a ragtag group of low lowlifes and he elevated them by the way of the cross. That's what he says to the church at Corinth. He's like, you guys didn't look all that good. You weren't the most eloquent. You weren't the smartest. You didn't quite have it all together. And the cross redefined you and reshaped you to make you God's beautiful instrument, his poetry, his song to the world around you. This, friends, is what we call the scandal of the cross. That he takes the broken and he makes them beautiful. That he takes the poor and he makes them rich. That he takes the surrendered and he makes them free. That he takes the last and he makes them first. This is the way of the cross. This is the scandal of the cross. God turning everything upside down. Everything upside down. And look at the things that he says here. He says, you weren't wise. You didn't have like the best rhetoric and good oratory. And you weren't, you weren't the sharpest tool in the shed, self. Now, I say that as your pastor. So what does that make me? The chief of all morons. Yes, I am. It's humbling. Because here's what he says. I didn't choose you because you had it all together. 
And I didn't choose you because you were brighter. I chose you simply because I'm for you. I love you. And I've made a way. He doesn't choose based on intellect. Have you ever thought, if I just knew a little bit more, then I would share my faith? Then I would step into the way of Jesus? Then I would actually start living this whole thing out? And what Paul says is, now this is, this is a foolish, mad endeavor, a life based on the cross and the cross alone. Second thing he says, look at this with me. Second thing he says, not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you are powerful either. You didn't hold the, the best positions. You weren't the one that could have changed the world by one edict or one decision or one thing. You were, you were the ones that were the powerless. You were the weak. If, if I were God, can I just say, if I were God, I'd do things a lot different. Every time I read something where I go, well, that's weird, I'm reminded I'm not God. And I'm reminded that his ways are not my ways, and I'm beautifully reminded of that every single time I step into this pulpit. God, you're just a normal, everyday guy. And yet, because of your action, because of your word, because Jesus, because of what you've done, I get to proclaim your word in a way that hopefully by the power of God and the word of God and the spirit of God blows up in your hearts to say he's beautiful, he's amazing, he's unreal. If that's happened to you here, it's not because I'm awesome, it's because he is. It's because his words are life and spirit and power. I would have chosen people that already had a platform and were already powerful. He goes, no, no, not me, God says. Not many of you were of noble birth. He goes, listen, you didn't come from the best family even. You didn't have a whole lot to your name. But hey, look up at me. Look up at me. Don't miss this. God's activity is not determined by your history. It's not. He says, I can take anybody and make him somebody. By my spirit, by my cross. It's as though Paul's saying, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his night. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Let's not boast in how awesome we are. But let him who boasts, and you should, you should boast. You should go, yes, Lord, thank you. Let him who boasts, boast in this, that he knows and that he understands me, that I am a God of everlasting, steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. Boast in that. And if anything declares that better than the cross, I'd love for you to come up and tell me after. His love, his righteousness, and his justice, they meet on Calvary's hill. And Paul says that's an absolute scandal. It turns the world upside down. It redeems sinners and makes them saints to his glory. Boast in that. It's the scandal of undeserved and unearned love, and it has the transformational power to absolutely change your existence. But you've got to step into the scandal. You've got to be, you've got to be foolish enough, crazy enough, mad enough to believe that a life based on the cross, the absurdity of the cross, is abundance. I don't know about you, but I have a ton of reasons why God shouldn't choose me, why God shouldn't use me. I know the sin I struggle with. I know the past I have. I know, I've got a litany of reasons that I can read back to God 
as to why he shouldn't use and choose me. But the beautiful nature of the scandalous cross is it destroys all of those. It says, yeah, that's great. That's quite the list. Wow, Paulson, you really got after it, didn't you? He said, then so did I. So did I. And I took it all. And I paid for it all. The scandal of the cross, it feels like foolishness because it definitively declares in all of our hurt, in all of our pain, in all of our brokenness, and in all of our failure, God is for us. That's what it declares. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. This is the way he ends this section. Verse 30. And because of him, that, that him there is Jesus. You are in Christ. So here's, oh, this is beautiful, this is beautiful, this is beautiful. Because what he says about salvation isn't just that you're saved and then you go into the category of the saved and then he's starting to work with you. No, we'd say when you are saved, you are put in Christ. You're in him. You're found in him completely, totally. It's not like when you get hot under the sheets and you stick a leg out of the covers. None of that going on, okay? It's you are wholly, totally in him completely. And him, he, Jesus, became the wisdom to us, the wisdom from God. Righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You can't get better than the cross, friends. You can't add to the cross. He says it's sufficient. It's sufficient to completely seal your destiny. Notice what he says here. And all of that, what we see is this cross is sufficient, the sufficiency of the cross for us. He says that because of the cross, you are the righteousness of God. So if there's anything, that simply means you're right with God because of the cross of Christ. So if anything stands between you and God, I can assure you it's in, God's, it's in your head, not God's. Because as far as he's concerned, you're good. You're righteous. You're, you're with Jesus. So if something stands between you and God, it's, on, it's, it's in your head, it's not in God's, I can assure you that. He goes on to say that by the cross you're sanctified. How do we grow in our life as followers of Jesus? By the cross. That's how we grow. That's how we become more and more in our practical, living, daily walk with Jesus set apart. It's not by trying harder. It's not by doing more. It's not by following the list of seven things that we should try to do more every day. It's by centering and wrapping our life around the cross. That's it. That's it. He says that by that you're sanctified. And then he finally, he says, and by that you are redeemed. As in, done deal. Scholars love to say, you, you are saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. Past, present, future of salvation, you have it all right there. Um, my family, we're, we're in the, the throes of um, having our kids destroy our furniture. So we buy most of our stuff at Ikea, um, because who cares if they destroy it, right? So here's the thing, here's the thing with Ikea. You can buy an entire kitchen set cupboards, table, and all in a shoebox. Now, that's great for transportation reasons, but when you get home and try to put that bad boy together, I mean, they should have a prayer ministry outside of Ikea. Hey, brother, can I pray for you before you set that up? Because, and here's a pillow to scream into, because you're going to need it. You're going to need it. 
So you get that home, right? And you start like putting it together, building it from scratch, and it grows and it grows and it grows. Um, I've heard, I've heard that when your kids stop destroying your furniture, you can actually go to stores and buy stuff that's already put together. Is this true? Okay, because it's a promised land. So you get to go and you get to pick out a piece of furniture. You can even sit down at the store and see like, oh man, that doesn't wiggle. That's all. Okay, so you can go. You pick it out. I've heard. You got to tell me from the other side. And they deliver it to your house. All set up and good to go. I hear a lot of people who talk about Christianity like the Ikea shopping spree. Where they're like, all right, so God saved me. Now it's time to get to work. And I gotta and I gotta put it together. And I'm gonna mess it up. I'm gonna have to redo it. And I'm gonna have to, it's gonna take forever. Here, here's the thing. Nothing could be further from the truth according to this passage of scripture. Because what Jesus did two thousand years ago on Calvary's hill was finish the work. He finished it. It's sufficient for you, friend. And so the, follow, the life of a follower of Jesus is not putting together the life that we're supposed to live. It's learning to abide and sit at the buffet table he's already finished. That's what it is. The Christian life is learning to live out who you already are. It's not becoming something different. Because here's what you already are. Tell me what's better than this. You are already redeemed. You are already saved. And you are being sanctified. It's all his word. It's all his work, and it was all started, finished, accomplished by Jesus on the cross. Your job is to learn to sit the finished work of Jesus. The cross is sufficient. You cannot add anything to it. Praise be to God. The gospel is not God helps those who help themselves. The gospel is Jesus did everything for you when you were helpless and he made you alive with Christ. Learn to live in it. Learn to love in it. Learn to enjoy it because it is your life as a follower of Jesus. That's good stuff. Praise be to God. It's fascinating though. If you look at like modern current scholarship, the cross continues to get edged out. I mean, you hear scholars write things like, well, the cross is sort of like a divine child abuse. How could we believe in a God like this? You hear trains of thinking where the cross is edged out, is pushed to the margins in light of things like the social gospel. And here's the thing. I'm all about helping people, and I'm all about the social gospel. But the power to live a life that truly, really helps people has to flow from the cross and out. It has to. It still stands at the center point. I'm probably more... Um, more popular in our stream of Christianity is the gospel is simply, it's not based around what Jesus can do, it's based around you being better. And hopefully we already killed that. And so here's the invitation. Everything else falls short. The invitation is simply, hold on to Jesus with all that you have and find out that he's all you need. Self, I pray you get a little foolish. I pray that you'd be mad, a little bit insane, so crazy that you would build your life, set your eternity and the course of your days 
on his cross and on his cross alone. Be that foolish. Be that crazy. Abandon yourself to his love. Trust in his sufficient sacrifice. And I invite you, as you do that, to be filled with his power. Because the truth of the matter, friend, is that foolish really is the new wise. And I pray that you and I and we will step into it and live it out well. Would you pray with me? Jesus, before we go running out of here, would you just do a work in us to make the truth of your word stick in our souls? We confess that we've built our lives, even our spiritual lives, on other things. So, Lord, in a fresh way today, may we see the supremacy of your cross. May we embrace the scandal of a world turned upside down by you clothing yourself in humanity, coming, living, dying, and conquering death on our behalf. And Jesus, may we, in a fresh way, trust in the sufficiency of what you've done, the finished work, that we are righteous, that we're being sanctified day by day as we wrap our lives and our hearts more and more around your cross, and that we will be redeemed and with you. Just stand faultless before the throne, dressed in your righteousness alone. Oh, Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you. You're great, you're amazing. We lift your name high today. It's in your name we pray, amen. This audio is from South Fellowship Church. Feel free to make copies of this message, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit us at southfellowship.org.